This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein and I'm here today with actually three people. We have Adam Wathen and Chris Keithlin from Vehicle. Hi guys. Hey, Hello. how's it going? And I'm also sitting next to Chad Pytel from ThoughtBot. Hey Chad. Howdy Ben. So uh, the reason we're all here together is because, uh, Adam, you sent an email asking if you could pick Ch- Chad's brain uh, about a few things about consulting. And we thought, sure, wh- but uh, why don't we record it and release it to the world? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to kind of chat with you guys a little bit about kind of what it was like when you guys were starting out as a, a smaller company and how you kind of managed what you were doing and uh, how you kind of honed your skills as far as, you know, gathering requirements from customers and figuring out how to manage different projects and getting the development team involved with, uh, you know, sales leads and figuring out when customers were appropriate and when projects were going to be a good fit. Yeah, sounds good. So uh, why don't you guys just dive in with the first question? Okay. Um, again, really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us. The vehicle is a smaller, newly like newly formed team, and we've uh, got some skilled people here, but we're trying to build our portfolio. And a lot of the times we find we end up working with startups that have really cool ideas, but uh, in the early stages, limited budgets. And one of the things that we've really been trying to wrap our heads around and work with customers on is, you know, you, a startup comes in and they're they're all very high level, pie in the sky, what they're going to be doing six months from now, but they've really got a budget for maybe three weeks of work and uh, trying to wrangle them and, and get a sense of like, what can we actually deliver for you and do requirements gathering and keep them focused on what they can, we, we can actually deliver for them and say three sprints rather than what's going to happen a year from now when they have tons of investment and thousands of users. So we know where the ThoughtBot of today is, but we were very curious to see when you guys were first starting out and kind of building up your portfolio, how how you kept uh, smaller customers on track and keep you know requirements reasonable and, and gather that information. Yeah, just like to do stuff efficiently so that when you have someone come in and and you only have like a small period of time to be able to do some work for them, how you can get into like the meat of things as quickly as possible and have a good understanding of what the problem they're really trying to solve is so that you can hopefully deliver something that actually solves a problem uh, and not kind of spread the load over a bunch of little features where nothing really ends up getting delivered in, in the time frame that you have available. One of the things that was, I think, always define us is that we never wanted to take a project that we we really knew that we couldn't be successful for the customer. And if we're just simply not going to accomplish what they're expecting in the time frame, we're doing ourselves and the customer a disservice when we uh, start working or we overpromise. And Another way that I look at at it is we never want to be the entire budget or use the entire budget for a startup customer. If a startup customer is going to use their entire budget on our development, then that means that they have no money for anything else in building their business. And that's a very, very bad sign, and it's setting them up for failure. So if someone came to us with realistic expectations and a budget that could only do three weeks of time. And what they're asking for development is realistic. I would still want to know that they have a budget beyond that for the other things that they're going to have to spend money on. 
Otherwise, no matter how good we were in those three weeks, they're not going to be successful. Uh, we could have built the most amazing thing in the most efficient ways of po as possible, and then they're not going to be able to buy the ad that they need or do whatever they're going to need to do going forward. That's step one is like make sure that you know, you're even setting them up for success if you can fully execute very quickly and be honest with yourselves and them about that. So uh, that aside, if you're in a position where you feel like, okay, you know, they're able to continue, we're gonna have to make the most of these three weeks, then you already hinted at it a little bit. You're gonna try to break down the problem and you're going to uh, try to be set expectations really well about what you're going to do. Nowadays, we start most projects with a, something that's called a product design sprint. And it is a five day, but it can be compressed to about three day, a very structured process of knowledge transfer, but also brainstorming and product development where we validate the business assumptions being made and we build a prototype in two days uh, that validates those business assumptions. That has a lot of great benefits for long running projects because we're evaluating the business assumptions and we're gonna go forward and build something that's really useful. But it also provides a structure for something that can be done in three to five days, which has a tremendous value to the customer. Uh, and that is you've validated their business assumptions and you've built a prototype in two days. And then you've put that in front of potential customers and watched them and recorded them use that prototype in an attempt to validate what you're going to build going forward. So if in three to five days you're able to do that, and then over the next uh, couple of weeks, further validate things by building out further prototypes, or depending on the size of the application, create a backlog that's gonna last two weeks and actually try to um, build a non-prototype version of something useful. So it sounds like you are maybe saying, if, if someone comes to you and the whole budget is for three weeks of work, that might not be a qualified prospect. Like that's probably a no actually, unless they w need something like the design sprint and are willing to just do that. Right. I think even when we were starting out, the only projects we ever did that were three weeks of work were marketing websites, where what we were going to be doing was design and then implementing HTML, mm -hmm. uh, CSS on a marketing website. Mm -hmm. um, any application that we were building would have been quite a bit longer than three weeks. I'll be honest, though, you know, back when we first started out, we did fix bid projects. And we got royally screwed a whole bunch. <laughs> so we definitely had projects where we said it was going to take six weeks. We said it was going to take four weeks. We did a fixed bid project based on that estimate. And three months later, we were still working on it, essentially for free, trying to finish. And we really, really screwed up in those scenarios. We built ThoughtBot based on the back of those screw-ups, <laughs> so it couldn't have been all that bad. Yeah. But it did mean we made no money for a long time and learned a lot of lessons about how we needed to operate differently in order to not get in that situation. Yeah, we. Um, I think a lot of uh, custom development shops kind of have that, well, hopefully learn that lesson because definitely the waterfall approach you kind of do a fixed bid project thinking, oh, that sounds like a lot of money. We can get we can get all sorts of things done for that amount of money. And then suddenly 
uh, yeah, three months over your, your budget and there's no more money and you're still working for sure. Right. Uh, yeah. For a while, I was on the kick that you could do a fixed bid project and manage it aggressively and nail it. Right. Um, and I was on this kick for a while. I remember, I think it was RailsConf 2006 or seven. there was a panel called like the business of rails or something. And I wasn't on the panel, but I was in the audience and it was a couple of other people and everyone on the panel, except one person was like, fixed bid is ridiculous. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, and I was sitting in the audience all smug being like, I got it figured out <laughs> and I've run three projects now or whatever fixed bid. And I, we've nailed them all. The reality is <laughs> you can do that, but you're eventually going to screw it up. And there are ways of working that. And, and we're not putting the cost on the customer either. It, in an ideal scenario, it's best for everyone. It's not like, well, we figured it out because we're smart developers and we put the cost on the customer. No. It's shared responsibility for what is being built and the time being spent on it. Right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think like the way we kind of do things now, right, is we'll build someone... Uh, for like an iteration price, which is it's basically like a product that we're selling now, right? It's like mm -hmm. a block of our time. And, you know, if the customer is happy with what was delivered at the end of that time, then they're happy with what they got for that value and they're, they're happy to keep paying us. And, and if they're not, then they're not and they're not an appropriate customer anyways. So it all kind of just works out better that way for everyone, for sure. The, uh, the waterfall approach puts you in a very conflictatory, like you're in conflict with your client all the time. And you can, I've seen it has worked, but it really, uh, on from project to project, but it really comes down on the account manager, the owner, whoever, really basically being able to argue with the client like, well, this is outside of scope and you need to give us more money. And that's a really bad relationship to have to be basically arguing with your customer rather than collaborating, trying to build something. Right. And if it doesn't come down to that, then it probably just came down to luck. Sure. Sure. You just <laughs> you, you made a guess and you were right. Um, I guess another question that we have related to the, you know, when you're working on smaller scale stuff is, and maybe you guys never had this problem initially, but like trying to like schedule sporadic sprints between different customers, you know, where you don't have something that necessarily you can really sink your teeth into, that you're gonna, hey, we're gonna work on this for the next six months. And so it's like, you're trying to juggle multiple projects yeah. with different sprints for, the, you know, this customer is a sprint for this customer this week and a sprint for this customer next week and, and trying to juggle that. So we've been in business 11 years and I would say, We've only been doing where everyone only works on one thing and pretty full time for the last four years. So prior to that, we did exactly what you said. So most people worked on not only sporadically on projects, but on multiple things at the same time. So most people worked on two to three things over the course of a week. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And we tried to optimize it a little bit. What we would do is say, like, Monday and Tuesday, you're working on this. And so we would try to shoehorn clients into regular work saying, you know, we're going to spend one week over the course of this month. Let's do it every Monday and Tuesday or whatever. So Monday and Tuesday, we're on this client. Tuesday and Wednesday, we're on this other one. And that's what we do. And so I managed a big spreadsheet. It had everyone on it, every client across the top, I think, and every person who worked at ThoughtBot down the side. And I just managed what people were working on. And it was a Google Doc eventually, and we shared it with the whole company. And every week I would post a message saying, here's what everybody's working on for next week. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. <laughs> it sounds, you're nodding your heads. It sounds yeah. that's similar to what, what you guys do now. Yeah. 
So like I said, we tried to break it down into days. So at least you were spending the whole day on one thing. And once we decided, hey, maybe we might be able to transition to only working on one thing at a time, it took a period of about three months to transition from the old way of working to the new way of working. And as people started new projects, we would have set new expectations with customers. And they, you know, people's schedules on the big spreadsheet just got more and more consistent. Um, I'm trying to remember how we transitioned to that. I don't really know, except we just decided that we wanted to. And then we started you know, in the sales process saying, we're going to work on this full time. And the people who are working on your project are only going to work on your project. And the reality was the year we did that, the year that we made that change and we had everyone only working on one thing, we worked with twice as many customers and did twice as many projects as we had done the year before. Mm And so what we found was that by only focusing on one thing, we got things done about twice as fast as we would have otherwise. And customers were happier and the team was happier. So instead of something taking 16 weeks, uh, we typically launched in eight weeks by having a team of people focused exclusively on that one project. So I got a question kind of related to that, I guess, is how do you sort of line stuff up and how far in advance are you scheduling like, oh, you know, you know, we're booking for August right now sort of thing. And how do you also keep the, the team that's doing the work in the loop with what's coming up to get start getting an understanding of, you know, what they're going to be working on before it comes in the door? Or how do you know, like, when whoever's doing the sales process to kind of bring those new projects in, how do they know for sure that, like, if they don't have the kind of input from everyone who's actually going to be doing the work, like, yeah. get a good understanding of, of what you're actually going to be working on and whether it's going to be appropriate? Yeah. So let's unpack that a little bit. So the the scheduling um, aspect of it, we have an app that we ended up building. We used to use Google Docs for this as well. Um, We ended up building an app, which is essentially a calendar. So we don't track time with some sort of time tracking system. We haven't for a long time. We haven't since we switched to everyone only working on one thing full time. Uh, We didn't need to track time anymore. But what we do have is a calendar and everyone keeps a calendar and that's a Rails app that we built. And so people manage their own calendar and the lead of each office helps them manage that calendar. So they have a calendar that shows what they're going to be working on on a daily basis and things that are about to be booked or that are actually booked are on that calendar. By looking at that, you know exactly whether someone is available or not. And we can know how far we need to book out until we'll have people available. Um, In order to have a team, and our team is typically a designer and two developers, that's our typical team size. In order to have a team, it usually takes, you know, three to six weeks out where we're booking a full team out. The reality is we almost always, at the size we're at now, we almost always have someone available. And so if the project is right, we can sort of say, okay, we're going to start to ramp up on this over time. That becomes harder when we're doing new product development because we really need the whole team available in the room together on the first day. And so those projects get typically booked out, you know, three to six weeks in advance. Developer-only projects or designer-only projects, we can take the person who's available and put them on that on day one and then ramp up the team over time over the course of that three to six-week period. I think the other question really, if I summed up, was 
uh, in the sales process, you know, pulling other, you, you want to pull in a developer occasionally, but at the same time, they're all working on stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of managing that balance. So we don't have salespeople. That's an important distinction. Uh, everyone who works at ThoughtBot is a designer or a developer. So we eliminate that uh, quite a bit. Now, there's times where you're talking to a potential customer where you just don't have the expertise in you know, a particular technology, particularly if it's like going to be an iOS project and you're just not an iOS developer and it's going to use like Bluetooth low energy and you just don't like know anything about the capabilities of Bluetooth low energy on iOS, for example. Sure. Just pulling that out of the air. Sure. Uh, so what we do is we have a Trello board where all sales go. And you can go to uh, playbook.thoughtbot.com to see a screenshot of that Trello board. And uh, everyone in the company has access to it. And every office has a managing director. And they're responsible for sales in the location. And so they're primarily moving the cards through the sales process or moving the leads through the sales process. And they're a developer or a designer. And so they can handle most of it. But Despite the fact that they can handle most of it, we we try to have someone else involved in every lead. And that gets multiple eyes on it. Um, And the way that we do that is we essentially just encourage people to be involved and put themselves on cards that they want to be involved in. And we also encourage the managing director sort of sees it as their job to get people involved. And they'll, so they'll look for aspects of a deal that someone might be interested in. So if this is, has to do with fashion or education, they might know someone in their office who's particularly interested in one of those things and uh, ask them to be involved. Okay. So the short answer is everything is public. The entire company can see everything and be involved in it. Uh, as much or as little as they want. And the managing director's job is to uh, get people involved there. For about a period of six months, we tried having presentations by the customers as the final set of the stage of the sales process. So before we started working with someone and before we start signed a contract with them, we had them come in and do a presentation for the whole office or whoever could attend. And that worked well, but it was so much overhead like it was enjoyable and it was fun for the clients and everything, but we didn't feel like it was significantly impacting the quality or buy-in from the team of the projects that we were taking. Mm. So we ended up phasing that out and doing it less. Yeah. I think what we were kind of getting at too was we still are in that process of like obviously we're trying to grow the uh, the business and we, we do pitches and things like that for potential customers. And on the focus of those pitches tends to be very much on selling the team and why we can, you know, do the work and and build instilling confidence in the customer. And then when it arrives to be worked on, there's not obviously as much say knowledge of the actual domain of what we're uh, say we're building a product like yep. what the industry is and all that because yeah. we've really focused the sales process on selling the team. And right. so I think what Adam's alluding to is, you know, do you guys have a? Pro- I guess it's you've kind of described that. Once we queue up the machine, then is you guys have this uh, system where you actually go and vet and pull out, this is what we're doing, and that's when your developers get really involved with the customer? I think that we spend a lot more time in our sales process determining whether the customer is going to be a good fit for us and we're going to be successful. Sure. So the problem we have is that the person who is involved in the sale, even though they're a developer designer, might not be the one who's working on it. And they have all the knowledge of what we're going to be doing. And so what we do in that process is we have a project overview document that we try to create that goes along with the 
project. And so, but the other thing we do is with the product design sprint or on projects we're not doing a product design sprint, uh, a very thorough kickoff um, as the knowledge transfer spin up process. But uh, we don't make a proposal and we don't put estimates on it until we essentially have all of the questions that we need to in order to give an estimate answered. So uh, we don't take projects where we don't have some idea of how long it's going to take. And in order to have some idea of how long it's going to take, we need to know enough about it. So it's very, very rare for us to take a project that we don't have a very thorough understanding of. And sure. that doesn't typically take too long. Um, it usually takes a couple hours of meetings. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what we were alluding to a little bit is that getting that knowledge transfer at the start then efficiently because there is that like the person that's been talking to the to the potential customer who now is a customer is not necessarily the one doing the work right and, and you, getting that knowledge transferred over to the people right. that are actually going to be doing the work and it, yeah. and uh, and you when you're in a meeting with someone that you've spent hours talking to and you've sold them on your team and then you get everyone around the table on the first day and no one knows what the hell is going on with the project <laughs> it just makes you feel like shit like sure. you're like, ah oh, man, and you do you have any idea how much we're charging these people? Like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. we haven't done a good job of transferring that knowledge. Oh, it makes me feel terrible, and it makes everyone feel terrible. So we we have the problem too, and we've really tried to get better at it. Um, so what is that solution? A kickoff meeting? Yeah, and also to set expectations with the customer. Like I've had customers that I talk to where I say like, this is part of the process, um, and try to set those expectations that like. The kickoff, the product design sprint, is knowledge transfer, and mm -hmm. that we haven't necessarily done it all up front, you know, to just try to set those expectations appropriately. Because you can't always do it, and there's no way that you're going to transfer all of the knowledge before the project begins uh, to the rest of the team. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's very helpful. One thing I was going to ask: if if you're saying like usually you're booking things out like you know three to six weeks in advance, like mm -hmm. how long is like a typical engagement for one team? Like how long are they actually working on the same thing? Most of our customers, uh, about sixty percent uh, or so, and I'm mostly making that percentage up, uh, <laughs> are where we are building the first version of a product, and most of them just have a pretty rough concept. Some wireframes, maybe a pitch deck, um, you know, pretty rough concept. And so part of what we're doing is we're going from concept to figuring out what the actual MVP is going to be and then building that as quickly as possible and launching it. That process, the typical time frame from concept to launch is four to 12 weeks. Four weeks is very fast, yeah. um, but we're able to do it on small projects. And then 12 weeks to launch is, you know, the typical longest we would typically go. That's three months. And going more than three months without launching your MVP is way too long, in our opinion, to not validate with customers the thing yeah. you've built. So that's, that's the time frame. And then most customers go on and we work with them for a total period of time of four to six months. So after we launch the MVP in four to 12 weeks, we do weekly iterations and we continue to work on, with that customer doing iterations based on the users who are using it, the feedback, the backlog, all that stuff 
for four to six months in total. So that includes the time to launch. So if we took 12 weeks to launch, we, the most we would typically be doing regular weekly iterations after that would be another three months. During that time, it's very common that the customer is trying to raise more funds and also trying to hire a team. So we help them interview people. And when they hire people, those people work in our office alongside of us and get trained up in what we've built and the way that we work. And at that four to six month mark, it's typical for our customers to raise money or become self-sufficient or just have already been self-sufficient and have a team and then move out of our office and go on and do their own thing. So that's the typical flow and time period for those kinds of clients. So there's like constant work for like that first whole eight months. Like, so after you get like that initial MVP launched, you still have like every single week there's a team working on it? No, um, it's pretty common for us to initiate pausing for a week or two. And honestly, it's usually us that does it rather than our customers. Because we're sometimes more in tune with, or we are more opinionated about whether something that's in the backlog is actually a priority or not. And so it's pretty common for us to say like, yes, we have 10 things in the backlog, which we could do next, but we don't really know what the next most important thing is to do. And there's no urgency to any of these items really. So let's pause or let's go down to halftime next week while we collect more feedback from customers and users and, and learn about what to do next. So it's pretty common for us to pause over the course of that period of time. That's the startup clients. You know, because of our expertise in Rails and design and iOS, people, more established companies come to us to help solve specific problems or challenges. And right. so those projects tend to be longer running still, where they could be long running things. Um, so those projects typically go for four to six months and longer where it's you know a team of two or three people working without stopping for a period of time. Yeah, that's a, we did have a question related to that as well. Because um, we found that clients that come for the end-to-end, -end, mm -hmm. you know, go everything from the, you, doing UX on the front end all the way to deployment, but there's definitely good contracts where we, you get brought, you know, asked because you have a particular, say, skill set in a particular development uh, language and it tends to be you're kind of working as part of like, you know, a certain portion of their team. Yeah, like staff, staff augmentation is what we Yeah, call. yeah. And did you, you know, have you guys found that that's a good thing to pursue? I know I, I know with us, we found that that actually sometimes is more stable than the cowboy world of the startups. Right. Um, well, it's certainly more stable. But the way that we look at it is that the people who work at ThoughtBot want to work at ThoughtBot, not at our customers. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to work at our customers, they would just go work there. Um, sure. And there are there are lots of reasons why they don't want to do that and prefer working at ThoughtBot. So we try to stay away from staff augmentation whenever possible. If we know that something is going to be staff augmentation up front, we almost never do the work. Sure. But there are times where what we start working on something where we think we're solving a specific problem that has specific bounds and that turns into staff augmentation. And when we realize that's the case, we try to correct it. And if we can't correct it, then uh, we wind down over time sure. as pretty as quickly as possible. But but we try to be realistic with the you know we don't want to just pull the rug out from underneath customers. They're relying on us to meet the, what they're trying to accomplish. So we wind it down over right. time. And was that the case when you guys were smaller as well? Like, did you use that to 
kind of supplement things between the, the, the more end-to-end -end stuff? Or did you always have a kind of laser focus on we want to do end-to-end -end product development? We always shied away from staff augmentation. So okay. up until 2012, we were 20 people just in Boston. And before that, we were 16 and then eight and then four. So we haven't been super big for that long. But the other thing is that we don't think about our company like we're so we're we're 85 people now across eight offices, but I don't think about it like that. I, all the office work is primarily local offices doing local work. So the team in San Francisco primarily does San Francisco work. So our office in San Francisco is 19 people. That means there's and that includes an office manager. So it, it's really 18 people who are actively doing client work. And so that's how we think about it. We think about it like a team of 18 people or in Stockholm, the team of six people. And so we don't think about it in the quite the, the same way as we don't have throngs of people that we need filler work for. We're not trying to staff 85 people. We're trying to staff six people on two projects because our typical team size would be three people. Sure. So I think we face a lot of the same challenges. Fortunately, so far in, we have the confidence and the, not savings is the wrong word, but sort of the stability to know we don't have the right work now. We're going to turn down this project. And that may mean that this person goes unbilled for another month. But that's what we have to do in order to be the kind of company we want to be. And then we need to make it work financially. And so in order to be the kind of company we want to be, that might mean we need to increase our rates in order to be able to go for a month or two months not billing and waiting for the right project. And obviously we try to minimize that, but it does happen. Okay, uh, th thank you. Um, just one other pro uh, question related to startups. We find we often get brought a whole mess of really bad code from something that a co-op student did or et cetera, et cetera. And do you guys just say, hey, we're not gonna touch that, we're starting over here? Or did you, and I'm, I'm kind of putting in the context of when, you know, a few years ago when you were trying to build out your, your yeah. base, you know, do you, did you deal with the old developer's code or did you just say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna yeah, start? Yeah, I mean, especially the context for that is, I mean, a lot of time we'll get someone that comes in that, oh, we just need this one feature. Like, can you guys like add this feature onto this thing and then like, you know, after that, you know, then we're going to get the money and we're going to do a rebuild or whatever. Like, uh, what, what do you do with customers like that? Do you, do you do that one feature and try and hack it on to, you know, whatever spaghetti mess is there? Or do you, you just say no? <laughs> <laughs> so we don't just say no. But what we try to do is suss out whether this is going to be an ongoing problem. So the reality is, is that no developer who is genuinely committed to being good is intentionally writing terrible, terrible, terrible code. Sure. Um, you know, that's, that's a significant, or I believe it's the minority case. Yeah. The majority case is that the circumstances that that developer was put in and that the company is in have caused yeah. that. Absolutely. And so what we try to do is is talk to them and say, okay, here here's the plan. We're going to do this, but we've evaluated where the app is currently at. And here are the things that we're going to need to do 
And I, I should say we shy away from rewrites. Rewrites are a really good way to screw a whole bunch of stuff up. Um, sure. So what we're typically saying is we're going to have to add test coverage to everything that we write going forward. And if we touch something that's existing, we're going to add coverage there. And over time, we're going to make this better and we're going to fix this problem. When we touch code that we think needs to be improved, we need the leeway in order to improve it. Yeah. And there's not going to be any conversations about like, oh, this is taking too long or, or whatever. Like we need the leeway in order to do this. But we're going to be able to deliver features along the way. And we look at what they have planned and they say, this is real. And we say, this is realistic. This is going to take longer. This is, you know, we're going to we're going to really work with them to try to meet the needs of their business. And the reality is, is that so many of the customers that we have that conversation with end up not working with us yeah. because they were never going to commit to anything that was a reasonable approach to solving the problem in the first place because they didn't understand why they were in that situation to begin with. And so they didn't understand the costs of fixing it. And no amount of education that we could do is going to fix whatever communication or budget problem led them to that in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, we were in a fortunate position, I think, in that when we were getting started with Rails, there was no bad Rails code. Yeah. So yeah. we had it easy in that regard. Yeah, I can say, like, for us, like, we're a PHP shop, right? And we specialize in a particular PHP framework. Mm -hmm. But we have had customers come to us before that have, like, a prototype that was just hacked on top of, like, WordPress, right? Where, like, yeah. they've added a couple of things to the back end to kind of try and trick it into yeah. doing things that they want to do. And things like that are obviously you know, really hard to work with. I think when you're working within the context of Rails development, right, at least you're guaranteed like a, some semblance of organization no, or something. No, you're not. No, no, you're not. People can do amazing things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I get what you're, uh, no, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, well, even in, in PHP, like if they've, if they've come to us with something that someone's built in a framework like Laravel or Symfony or something like that, at least you're, the bar is set higher than say like, oh, we, the co-op student did this in WordPress. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I think with Rails, like you're kind of alluding to, there's at oh, the start at least there was a, good there was a good development. Yeah. So you can do you can do that kind of work. You know. So while when we started out using Rails, we were like the first consulting company to switch to Rails. There wasn't a lot of bad Rails code. We switched, or we started using it pre 1.0, and we sw officially switched like when it hit 1.0. Um, there was like HashRocket for a while had their rescue mission stuff, I think it was called. And so there were comp there are companies that sort of specialize in that. And I think that branding it that way has a certain benefit because if someone's coming to you knowing that they're going to be a rescue mission, chances are probably good that the expectations are set that like, I'm not going to be doing future development or, or I am, but it, it's, it's, I'm in a rescue mission scenario. Mm -hmm. So expectations are probably better set. Someone who doesn't have those expectations is, is pretty difficult to, to navigate. And so we just take the approach, be super upfront, set expectations good. Don't be negative about it. Like I said, we almost never pitch a rewrite because yeah. it's a good way to take a really long time not accomplishing anything. Yeah. Um, you know, we just try to be honest and upfront and not, we don't even really lay blame. Uh, just have a conversation about what's going to be necessary. And if, if you can't come to a consensus, then it wasn't going to work out anyway. Cool. Okay. No, this we was very, very questions. insightful. And I know we've, we've taken like 50 minutes of your time. So there was a lot of good stuff that uh, we got from this. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thanks a lot.
So if someone wanted to reach out to you, Adam, or you, Chris, in particular, uh, what's a good way to do that? Um, you can reach me on Twitter, just at Adam Wavin, uh, or via email. It's just uh, a.wavin at vehicle.com. Uh, you can reach me uh, via email c.keithlin at vehicle.com uh, or LinkedIn as well. I tend to hang out there quite a bit. Okay, great. Today's show was edited and produced by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 103. Thanks for listening. And that's it. That should do it. <laughs> I have to say, guys, you seem remarkably non-Canadian. Oh, really? We're close to the border. We're so. close. To, we're close. I to mean, the we border. could say a a few more times. You, talk you, maple syrup and hockey. Yeah, you did thank him after every strong. question, which I thought was a little Canadian. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did we say, say thank, thank you, you quite a bit after every. We, after start, we, started, we didn't apologize enough, though. No. Yeah. Well, we started. Usually awkward silences are just Canadians saying yeah, sorry to true. each other. You should apologize for not apologizing enough. Sorry.